Today on the horse race, preliminary season rides on. 11 cities across Massachusetts participated in preliminary elections this week. Now, each city's top two vote-getters face another month of campaigning before the general election decides the mayorship. We're breaking down what happened in some of these elections and what to expect come November. It's Thursday, September 23rd. Welcome back to The Horse Race. I'm Jennifer Smith. I'm Lisa Kaczynski. And I'm Steve Cazella. We've reached that time of year when we all stop, breathe in the crisp hashtag Mappily air, and ponder the truly important questions of our time, like, why do people like candy corn and circus peanuts? Okay, okay. I can't believe we have to have this argument every single year. <laughs> candy corn is good and fine, and circus peanuts are not candy. Okay, that's, I, I'm saying, like, one of that's these a is a take. good candy, and one of these is for elephants. <laughs> I personally do not understand what circus peanuts even are. I encountered them for like the first time a few years ago, and I am still utterly baffled by them. But candy corn, super pro candy corn, do not want to hear arguments otherwise. Wow. Two pro candy corn hosts. I think that may be the official end of this podcast. So thank you all for joining us. And that's it. I'm sorry. Wait, but Steve, is it just you out on an island somewhere? Or do you have anyone who also feels the same way that we can be dismissive about? As it turns out, I have science and data and statistics on my side. Um, super scientific survey slash analysis done by the website candystore.com, which is my source for all reliable candy-related science and statistics. And they mashed together a bunch of rankings that other websites had done and then did their own survey and ranked the 10 worst candies um, of any Halloween candy. Uh, so here they are. Number 10, black licorice. Yucky. We all agree on that. Good and plenty. Tootsie Rolls. I don't get that. I actually like Ugh. Tootsie Rolls. No, I love Tootsie Rolls. Yeah. Number eight worst candy was Tootsie Rolls. Uh, Mary Jane's never heard of those wax cola bottles, which is apparently thing uh, something that some people eat. Necco wafers, Smarties, peanut butter kisses, and number two, circus peanuts. And number one, candy corn is the worst Halloween candy, according to science. Lisa looks stumped. I'm going to take umbrage with, did you say Smarties? Yeah. What's wrong with Smarties? Smarties and Tootsie Rolls are both in the bottom 10, according to the super scientific analysis. I'm not okay with this. I think <laughs> no. you're going to need to run your own poll. That's a good idea. We should do that. We should do our own like top 10 horse race listener candy preference poll. Uh, I mean, I do love this as, uh, again, as I said, an annual, an annual fall event. We argue about this every year. For some reason, the polling comes out in September. So you have a whole month to argue with your loved ones before Halloween rolls around and you can pelt each other with rejected candy. But do you know what else people do in the fall here aside from leaf peeping some foliage and picking some apples? Any guesses? I'm going to say voting in Massachusetts preliminary municipal elections. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. <laughs> Not turnout. as often as we'd like, as it turns out. <laughs> I was going to say turnout numbers suggest this isn't so much a tradition as much as a hobby. Some people decide to pick up in September. Um, but we have some of those preliminary elections this week, didn't we, Lisa? That's right. 14 cities outside Boston had municipal preliminary elections last Tuesday, and 11 more were held this Tuesday, and two more, because we're not done yet, are scheduled for next Tuesday. There's some really interesting and potentially history-making stuff going on in some of these elections, and while of course we can't cover all of them, we are going to dive into a handful and break down why they matter. 
To do that, we're joined by some folks with in-depth knowledge on these elections. We're here with Matt Safransky, editor-in-chief of Western Mass Politics and Insight blog, which has been closely following the mayoral election in Holyoke. Juana Matias is the COO of Mass Inc., a former state representative of the 16th Essex District and a resident of Lawrence. And last but certainly not least is Greta Yoakum, Berkshire Eagle reporter who's been covering the North Adams election. And because we can't give all three of you the traditional horse race titles, we're going to collectively call you the Jedi Council of City Council and Massachusetts mayoral elections. Welcome, all of you. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask each of you, and starting with Matt, what makes the races that you're that you're here to talk about interesting and in, in many cases historic? Well, I mean, in Holyoke's case, uh, you know, it's the first uh, election, first completely open election in 12 years. It's the first election in 10 years without Alex Morris on the ballot. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's an opportunity for a, a paradigm shift in, in leadership uh, at, at the top in, in Holyoke. Um, and now that we have results from the preliminary in Holyoke, there is the potential for there to be a history making in a different way. Uh, the city could elect its first uh, Hispanic mayor. The city is, I, I believe, majority Latino, most of which is Puerto Rican. And it would be a, a huge deal if uh, it elected uh, a Puerto Rican mayor. And Greta, of course, uh, all four candidates in the North Adams race were women. And you have the potential to see the first female mayor of the city. Was that something that was really front of mind during the election itself? Absolutely. Yeah. North Adams, um, like you said, has never had a, a woman in the mayor's office. Um, and I believe most um, cities uh, in the Commonwealth have um, already, though some more recently like Boston. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely top of mind for for people um, this election season here. And Juana, of course, up in Lawrence, uh, we're having a mayoral election there because for now former mayor Dan Rivera is now the head of mass development. So what were how did that one unfold? Yeah, you started your question about what was so dynamic about these elections. And in Lawrence, all of our elections, I feel, are competitive and dynamic. But this one was an important one. We had the first Latina uh, candidate to run for mayor in the city of Lawrence, Vilma Rodriguez, um, had a viable campaign. The the conclusion of the campaign didn't include her. Uh, both uh, sitting and acting mayor Kendris Vasquez topped the ticket, followed by business owner and former city council member Brian DePena. Um, and now they're moving on to the general, and it's going to be a contentious race between them both. Um, I believe Kendris had about 40% of the vote, and uh, former city councilor Brian DePena, 36% of the vote. So um, on to the general, and we'll see how it all um, maps out. Lisa, of course, you know, you're the co-host of the podcast, but also uh, delightfully a working reporter here. And we're going to get into some of the themes around what came out of the prelims and kind of what we're looking at going into November later. But you've obviously also been following races in Everett and Framingham that I'm sure are going to involve some of these same themes. So as we kind of get things kicking off, what have you been watching there? And uh, do you have anything that you'd like to sort of get into as we get going. Yeah, there are really three types of races shaping up across these mayoral preliminaries. You have the open seats in Boston, in Lawrence, Holyoke, North Adams. 
Then you have two types of races involving incumbents. You have the incumbents who are flying through these preliminaries, you know, topping the ticket, easily getting through. Then uh, those are in Everett, Brockton, cities like that. Then you have incumbents who are looking like they might be in a little bit of trouble. And that's coming up in Framingham and Gloucester, where you had two incumbent mayors finish second in their preliminaries. So that means that they will get through to the final. But they're starting at a vote total disadvantage against their competitor. Uh, So pivoting exactly off of that, the dynamics when we've got newcomers running for city office or when there is already a sitting mayor, uh, starting back with Greta, we had an open seat here. The former mayor decided not to run again. So what impact did that have on the race and how familiar were the two candidates who ended up coming out on top of the prelim? Yeah, um, the current mayor, Tom Bernard, announced um, pretty early in the year that he wouldn't be um, seeking re-election, kind of a a lot of mayors across the state seem to (laughs) have been doing um, amid COVID. Um, And hard to say exactly how that, you know, impacted things um, in terms of who decided to run. Um, I think it kind of opened up the the field for for people to come forward. We had four... um, all women, uh, four people, uh, run for that position. Um, and um, what was the second question? How familiar were they? Yeah, so so it, it occurred to me while going through the candidate bios, of course, that, that Jennifer Maskey and Lynette Bond were both coming from a municipal background. They were already pretty familiar to, to folks in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they both do come from uh, municipal backgrounds um, or at one, you know, one point in their careers. Um, Lynette Bond worked for the town of Adams for a while and Jennifer Maxey um, worked for the city of um, North Adams um, in their past. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see like how they differentiate um, with their with their platforms because they certainly seem to have a lot in common um, so far. And Juana, um, talk to us about that sort of scenario in Lawrence. Both of the candidates who made it through were pretty seasoned politicians. Um, and, you know, the acting mayor, Kendris Vasquez, was able to make it through his preliminary when acting mayor Kim Janey in Boston didn't. And Kendris has been around Lawrence politics for a long time now, right? That's right, Lisa. Um, both acting mayor Kendris Vasquez and Brian do have municipal um, experience in the city of Lawrence. Uh Vasquez has been on the city council representing the District C for many, many years. Um, um, and Brian DePena, business owner and former city councilor, ran at large and has at large ID. And that was able to be shown in this election. I think what's interesting about this race is it's going to play out a little bit in the same way that um, Dan's race played out. Himself and Lantigua topped the ticket. And then you had some other candidates in this race, like Mantigua, again. Uh, you had Rodriguez, Doris Rodriguez, and then you have Vilma Rodriguez, who had some support. And we're going to see, are they going to back either Vasquez or De Peña in the coming weeks? And I think that could have a huge determination in terms of who makes it to the final. Danny was very astute and strategic when he was running and was able to you know, create a pipeline of these candidates who had run, did not make the final, make it to the general and got their backing. And you know, it edged out and came out on top of Lantigua. So um, very interesting to see what will happen in the coming weeks, whether these other candidates stay out or they back one of the other two candidates who are in the general now. So then for each of the races that, that, you, that you were looking at or that you covered, um, what were some of the issues that, that were dividing the candidates? I know some of them are kind of familiar and 
in common, I would think, you know, COVID is certainly something that's being dealt with everywhere, but I, I'd imagine that there are some others that were specific and local. So starting with Matt, I wonder if you give us a flavor of just what were some of the issues that were discussed during the course of these campaigns? Well, the big issues that were, uh, you know, before the candidates, such as during like, debates, uh, is in economic development, uh, you know, trying to, you know, resist climate change, you know, be more green in, 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 uh, in cities, energy consumption. Um, I think one of the things that was also like always hovering in the background, but sometimes a little bit hard to get its arms around is the Holyoke schools are in state receivership right now. And a consistent question that I asked the candidates, and I think that was in front of mind for many of them is how does the Holyoke schools uh, become under local control again? Um, and so, you know, the general sense was, you know, the mayor has to be more assertive. It has to be more, uh, you know, outwardly and, and public. You know, Morris was criticized during his congressional campaign last year for being somewhat aloof when it came to the schools in the lead up to the, the state takeover. So I think you saw some uh, candidates talk a lot about how whatever the mayor's role is vis-a-vis -vis the school committee, uh, they really need to be the one that's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the state to set down benchmarks and then make sure that they hold the state to them if the schools meet them. And Greta, one thing that you mentioned was that you're watching to see how these two candidates distinguish themselves in the general election. Was there a lot of overlap in their policy positions? Uh, were they highlighting the same sorts of things in the in the preliminary? Yeah, I think um, they certainly both had a lot of issues in common that they brought up um, in interviews and um, also in a debate um, recently. I mean, a major issue in the city is infrastructure. There were issues with the city fire hydrants um, that slowed down response to fires. Um, there are other um, infrastructure issues across the city with the water and sewer system and um, city buildings. Um, so that was a huge issue. Um, and similar to what Matt mentioned, economic development also um, a big issue here. I think it will be interesting as the campaigns uh, move ahead to see uh, where they do differ um, and even within those issues where they differ within their details of, um, you know, how they want to address um, those problems. And Juana, when I was up in Lawrence with you and former Mayor Rivera recording our last podcast, Mass Reboot, each of you talked about and pointed to a number of buildings that kind of showed the huge economic development uh, promise and future that Lawrence is sort of facing over the next few years. Is that kind of what the campaign was about or were there other, other issues that um, the candidates focused on more? I think that was definitely one of the issues that was central in the campaign, you know, economic prosperity. Um, but it was also tied around housing. Uh, we've seen housing costs go up in the city of uh, Lawrence, and it's a concern and front of mind for most residents. So you saw all of the candidates in this preliminary really talk about what their housing plans were, uh, um, were about. I think education is always going to be a staple of an issue that's of importance in Lawrence. Um, like Matt had mentioned, we're currently still in receivership. We now have the uh, LAE board instead of a receiver in its place. And so what are the commitments these candidates have to public education um, and higher ed as well? So that was a hot topic. I think there's some differences um, amongst the candidates in, in, in their position on that. And you know, lastly, it's, you know, what are we doing to ensure that we're continuing to drive economic growth um, in the city? You know, we've come a long way 
Uh, we no longer have, you know, double the rate of unemployment that the state has seen, but there's a lot more that can be done in terms of what are we doing to provide workforce development opportunities for residents in the city of Lawrence. So that was also a topic that uh, the candidates engaged in. And I think all three of those policy areas are going to continue to be a, something that is talked about and people want to learn more from the candidates in terms of what their agenda is. And of course, one of our favorite things to talk about here is exactly uh, how many people actually showed up in the preliminary election to come and cast their votes on this one. Lisa, do you want to basically kick us off here by talking about what the turnout was looking like in the races you were specifically narrowing in on? Uh, and then I'd love it if Matt and Greta and Juana could talk about what the expectations and hopes were for turnout and then what we actually ended up seeing. I think the easiest way to start this is actually to kick back to Boston's where we didn't see a historic turnout um, or a record turnout given the historic nature of the Boston mayoral race. So that is something, you know, these cities have smaller vote totals. I think Holyoke I saw was just a few thousand, um, you know, a thousand some odd per each person who made it through. Um, You know, it's some of these municipal elections and in some especially in some of these smaller cities can draw what looks like pretty low turnout um so i would love for our guests to put that into some context yeah happy to in the city of lawrence i think you're right lisa we only saw 22 percent of registered voters go out and vote um so relatively low turnout about 9,100 people turned out um it's not too far off from what we've seen in previous elections Um, But it's surprising because, you know, what happens locally has a bigger impact than what happens at a state and federal level. So I think in the general, we will see what we've seen previously, which is about 13 to 14,000 people come out to vote. Um, But we'll see how the candidates, you know, mount their campaigns in these final weeks to ensure that we have a strong uh, turnout. And Matt, Lisa, very directly talking about Holyoke. So uh, we had you know, not that much difference between the candidates, only a few thousand people came out. So what did that actually look like? Who was showing up and how many of them did? Yeah, so it was about 5,100 people that showed up, which amounts to roughly 19%. Um, I have to say, um, being a Springfield resident, that's still better than Springfield normally does for its uh, preliminaries. So um, it it could be worse is the way I would kind of see it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I would differentiate very clearly between expectations and hopes. There's a huge chasm in there. I think people were generally hoping for 25% plus. Um, I don't think they were terribly shocked that it was 19%. Um, and it's funny, actually, because you know some people spoke to me yesterday and uh, they thought that maybe the low turnout might have actually benefited Josh Garcia because at the last minute, his campaign is pulling you know, voters out of particularly the Latino precincts, you know, basically people off the street, you know, have you voted yet? And that might have been, you know, a, a, enough to push some of the, the no, not entirely all by itself, but push some of the vote totals over that he gets over the, uh, you know, at-large city councilor uh, who was in third place. It is sort of amazing to think that, you know, that issues that affect our day-to-day lives so much are, ch- are decided or the leaders are decided by such a small uh, slice of the electorate. Uh, Greta, how did it look in North Adams? Yeah, so North Adams had about 1,400 people um, of 9,000 or so registered voters come out. So it's about 16% of people. Um, so not, not a very high percentage um, <laughs> that came out. Um, it was not too far off um, from the last preliminary mayoral election four years ago in 2017, um, just a little bit less. 
Um, hard to say exactly, you know, why some people may have felt like um, there was a there was a sense that um, to the two candidates who won were were going to win. I'm not sure most people were surprised and they won by quite a bit over the other two candidates. So that may have held some people um, who were more on the fence um, from coming out to vote, but you never really know. Um, I think we'll hopefully see um, more people turn up in the general election in November. That's a really interesting point to that kind of sense of of predestination often comes out in smaller local municipal races. Often, of course, if you only know two of the four names on the ballot, you might say, well, what am I going to show up for one of these two names that will probably be fine? Did any of you in thinking about the results of the preliminary election, and particularly in terms of turnout, see any sort of response saying we should be addressing turnout in prelims in any kind of way? Ranked choice voting often gets thrown around a lot, but that can look very different the smaller the town gets. Yeah, I'd say that that you know, it'd be interesting to see how that turned out in Holyoke, because uh, this is actually an interesting way to talk about one of the big dynamics, which is the leader, Mike Sullivan, in that race kind of had all the conservative vote in the city consol- uh, consolidated. You know, the the pro- the progressive vote in the city was scattered across the rest of the field. So um, I don't know that it would have been Josh Garcia who got the, you know, the all the the votes. I mean, if we're if we kind of did like a ranked choice, like maybe to still do top two, for example, if he would have necessarily been the person who would have been the, the progressive choice. I do think that it's based on the, the at least the people who showed up, there's a really good chance that Sullivan would not have been first if people had the chance to transfer their votes back and forth, uh, depending on, on on how people were doing. Because uh, the, the people who were voting for like Rebecca Lisi, who came in third, I don't think many, if any of them, would have been voting for Sullivan. So we need to look forward to November a little bit. And I want to start uh, with Lawrence. Juana, what are the issues that you anticipate or what do you think the dynamics are going to be in the in the uh, final election up in Lawrence as we move move into the next phase? Thank you, Steve, for that question. Yeah, I think, like I mentioned, most of our elections are very contentious. Um, we are a majority minority district, right? Majority Latino district. Um, it's great to see. Um, in this time, Hispanic Heritage Month, uh, you know, a ballot with two uh, Latino candidates and a majority Latino candidates also down the ballot for city council races and at district and at large. I think, you know, the issues that voters are going to care about in Lawrence are what are we doing to ensure that there is economic growth in the city? What are we doing around our public schools to ensure continued success Um, What are we doing around public safety that continues to be an issue, you know, for a city of 80,000 plus residents. Um, And I think it's really going to be upon the candidates and and getting their messages out to voters. I think COVID had a huge impact in terms of knocking on doors and candidates seeing you um, and their volunteers at your doors explaining why they're the best fit uh, for this time. And so these next this next month is going to be critical. It was a tight race. You're talking about less than four percentage points between um, acting mayor Kendris Vasquez and former city councilor Brian De Peña. They're both Latino candidates, um, and you know our community is is clearly divided um, between them. And it's really important to see what happens with the Lantigua Lantigua votes and the Rodriguez votes, where people go and are they able one to to get new voters to come out that weren't a part of the preliminary race. I think that's really going to determine who who edges out on top. 
Um, and and so for Greta, Matt, and Lisa, this is a three for, and we're going to go in that order on this one, which is as reporters, what are you watching in the next month to basically get a sense of how well set up any of these candidates are going to the general? Is it you know, real pushes for voter drives? Is it, you know, a push for more ads? Is it outreach to certain voters? Is it really starting to go after the other candidate? What's the most interesting thing for you in these races that you are covering as we head toward November? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting in North Adams to see how the two candidates try to set themselves apart from each other. Um, They have highlighted a lot of the same issues. Um, So I think um, how they try to differentiate from each other, um, whether that's talking about, you know, what their solutions are or, um, you know, I don't know what it'll look like, but I'm really watching um, for that. Um, And the other part is similar to what one I was saying is I think about turnout um, to see if they can get more voters to show up um, with, you know, 16% of registered voters coming out um, and 97%, almost 97% of those votes going to those top two candidates. I think it's going to be interesting to see um, if they can push for for more people uh, to come out and if that will make the difference for, for whoever wins. Yeah, and in Holyoke, I think what we're gonna we need to start watching is how is Garcia gonna start powering his campaign moving forward. I mean, he was not a leader in in fundraising ahead of the preliminary. Sullivan has tens of thousands of dollars at his disposal, and he could very well have more. Um, so Garcia is gonna have to you know bolster his fundraising. He's gonna have to consolidate the for lack of a better description, anti-Sullivan vote on some candidates, former candidates, uh, I I understand are going to be supporting him. Others have not yet. Um, So he has a lot of work to do in order to consolidate the the, the field moving forward. Um, But I'd say that he probably has as good a chance as as anybody to overcome, as I said, this more conservative element that has kind of uh, uh, consolidated behind Sullivan. And I'll take this one a little generally, given the sheer number of races we have across the map. So as Juana had pointed out, endorsements, looking at where, you know, a lot of these races had big preliminary fields, five, seven people. Um, So looking where they go, you know, across the map and who they back, especially in cases where the progressive vote maybe had been a little more split and to see if there can be, you know, the consolidation of that against, you know, a more conservative vote, as we've talked about. Get out the vote efforts, of course, given the lower turnouts. And, um, you know, also looking at what happens with COVID as we move into the fall. I mean, obviously, in Boston in particular, uh, you know, that kind of reared up a lot this summer and, you know, hurt acting Mayor Kim Janey in the process a little bit. So looking to see if that rears up, and of course, we hope it doesn't any further this fall, and if that starts to take precedence again over some of these pressing local issues like housing and education. All right. Well, we have to leave it there. Matt Safransky, Juana Matias, and Greta Yoakum, thank you all so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to something to watch. Lisa, I know you've still got another round of prelims to keep an eye on, but are you paying attention to anything else? Why, yes, I am. Suffolk District Attorney Rachel Rollins' nomination for U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts is finally moving forward in the Senate, or at least it's starting to. She's got strong backing, of course, from Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, who recommended her for the job in the first place. 
Now she's got the backing of dozens of current and former politicians, law enforcement officials, members of the legal community, and other community activists and advocates who are sending letters to the Senate Judiciary Committee urging them to move as quickly as they can on her confirmation and playing up her law enforcement and criminal justice reform credentials. So is that where it goes from here? For those who aren't following the process as closely as the Senate Judiciary Committee, is that kind of where the, where her nomination sits at this point? Yeah, it is. She is before their committee on Thursday for like a business meeting and with a bunch of other nominees. And then it needs to uh, clear that committee and then the full Senate in order for her to get confirmed. And if she is confirmed, Governor Charlie Baker is going to be the one who picks her replacement to fill out the remainder of her term as Suffolk DA. And one thing that could factor into that decision is whether he's running for a third term. Do we have any sense? I know there's been some completely unconfirmed, wild Twitter speculation about who her replacement might be. Any better sense of that at this point? There are a few people who have kind of put their names into the mix. Um, You have, of course, Boston City Councilor Michael Flaherty. Uh, You have a couple of former candidates who ran in the DA's race in 2018 that Rollins ultimately won. Uh, But right now from the governor himself, we don't have a great sense of who he's leaning towards. All right. Well, for me, my something to watch is related to that. And of course, it is Baker's never ending reelection speculation. It just seems like it's been going on for a really long time now. Um, There was an article, I guess it was this weekend or perhaps earlier this week, where a bunch of uh, sort of major business leaders in the Boston area were all fired up and all excited about Charlie Baker running for a third term. So um, I don't know. Nobody knows when that's coming, but it is now starting to get to the point where you kind of expect it. Uh, and that's for a few reasons. One is it seems like 2020 and 2021 would never end, but we are now almost to the end of 2021 and almost to the beginning of what would even be a pretty conventional gubernatorial re-election or election campaign. Um, so I think that that's a reason to expect that we will probably know relatively soon whether Baker's going to be looking for a third term. Jen, how about you? Yeah, I was just going to say, imagine if the last uh, name in the gubernatorial race is the sitting governor. Just give us time. We'll get there. Well, one thing that was occurring to me is we spent a lot of time in our mass reboot series over the summer talking about the impact of the pandemic on K-12 students. And at the time, there was this a lot of discussion because parents and educators were saying over and over and over again, please don't just focus on test scores. Please focus on the emotional toll that this has had on, on our children. But those test scores are still a thing that we can look at because they are numbers and we can see them change. And uh, the MCAS scores from the spring have just dropped and they they really were not great. So the thing that I am watching uh, right now is seeing kind of how that gets picked up politically if they suddenly say, for instance, at the state level, our priority has to be addressing this test score drop. And if that either increases or decreases pushback from the people who are still trying to say, please don't just focus on the test scores. So we'll see how that shakes out. But scores didn't look great, folks. No, they did not. But that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we're taking a trek up Beacon Hill to see what state government's juggling at the moment. And we'll have some familiar faces to help guide us. Until then, I'm Lisa Kaczynski. I'm Steve Kazella. And I'm Jennifer Smith. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and keep an eye out for us next week. We will see you then. Bye.